The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. We constantly hear politicians in the press speak about wind and solar power as if they're environmentally friendly. Green energy, they call them. But in his film, Planet of the Humans, Michael Moore shows that wind and solar power are in fact extremely damaging to the environment. Jay, do you think that Moore was exaggerating? No, he wasn't exaggerating at all. And our guest today is going to, among other things, describe for us a problem with solar that I think absolutely nobody has uh, even thought of or considered. And that's, uh, we got millions of these solar cells around the country and uh, they're going to be out of their usefulness in the not too distant future. Uh, what do we do with them? How do we get rid of them? And I think that's something that nobody has thought of before. So introduce our guest and we'll uh, get with that subject. And we're also gonna talk about the uh, cost of decarboning the world, the stupidest idea anyone ever came up with, that would be essentially delifing the world. But uh, our guest organization did a study on the, the cost of doing this stupid thing. Anyway, we'll talk a little bit about that. So go ahead and introduce our guest. Yeah, sure, Jay. Isaac Orr is a policy fellow at the center of the American experiment, where he writes about energy and environmental issues, including mining and electricity policy. Prior to joining Center of the American Experiment, Isaac served as a research fellow at the Heartland Institute, where he specialized in energy and environmental policy. Before that, he served as an aide in the Wisconsin State Senate. Isaac has written extensively on hydraulic fracturing, frac sand mining, and we'll have to ask him what that is, electricity policy, among other energy and environmental issues. His writings have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, the New York Post, the Hill, Orange County Register, the Washington Times, and many other publications. Isaac graduated from the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire with studies in political science and geology, winning awards for his undergraduate geology research. So welcome to the show, Isaac. Hey, thanks, Tom. Appreciate it. My bio is too long. I always feel uncomfortable with how long it's getting. Uh, but uh, one of the more important things the listeners can know is I grew up on a dairy farm in Wisconsin, so that's why I care about issues like this. These are the the kitchen table issues that affect people living in rural America. Energy is obviously a huge part of that equation, so that's really the the formative reason why I'm excited to talk to you guys today. I wish more of our politicians had <laughs> grown up on dairy farms. Farm. No question about that. Well, before uh, we get into talking about the technical aspects of uh, solar energy and uh, decarbonizing the 
the world, as I mentioned a few moments ago. Tell us a little more about uh, your organization for our listening audience and uh, what your role with the organization is. Yeah, for sure. So I work for an organization called Center of the American Experiment. It's a long name, so we usually call it American Experiment. Uh, And we are a free market think tank located in Minnesota. So uh, we tackle a whole variety of different issues. We have two economists on staff to talk about tax policy, spending policy, how are things going on that regard. Uh, We have education work that we do. Uh, We have a public safety fellow who's a retired police officer talking about the spike in crime in Minnesota as a result of you know, the events that happened here in 2020, how do we, how do we get back to a safer, safer streets? So uh, we cover just the, the whole bandwidth of issues. And uh, it's a really exciting time to be working on energy issues, which is, you know, obviously what I've been doing. So uh, my colleague, Mitch Rowling and I uh, have gotten, we've developed a little niche where we you know, we take the the cost of a proposed piece of legislation and we figure out, you know, what that'll what that'll cost. So we did this for the clean electricity performance program that the Democrats in Congress were trying to shoehorn through, uh, which would have essentially been a carbon tax for all intents and purposes with uh, with Joe Manchin. And, you know, fortunately, that piece of legislation died, but we still got the, you know, quote unquote, Inflation Reduction Act. But uh, really what we specialize in is you know, analyzing the cost of these proposed these proposals, right, uh, and getting out a report quickly so that way we can influence policymakers at a state level. Well, that's uh, really fascinating. Now, our audience is surely aware of the growth of what we often call solar farms uh, across the nation. How much of the nation's energy are we actually getting from these uh, solar farms right now? Yeah, I like to call them solar facilities because I feel like calling them farms is a little bit too generous, right? Uh, but uh, yeah, so I, I love this question. And I whenever I give a presentation uh, to groups throughout, you know, Midwest area, like I get requests for, for talks. So um, I always start off with like, okay, so imagine that all the energy that we use in our daily lives is embodied by that little icon in your phone, right? That little battery icon. We've all got the phones, we've all got tablets. And I say, if you could have your battery charged to any percentage, what would you want it to be charged to? And you know, people in the audience always give me the most rational answer, which is 100%, right? And then I say, well, how much of our energy do you think comes from uh, wind or solar? And most of the time people say, oh, well, not very much, probably like 20 or 30%, right? And then when you look at the federal data from the U.S. Energy Information Administration, uh, solar only constitutes about 1.4% of the total energy that we use every day. And wind is only 3.2%. So uh, we actually get more energy uh, from burning wood than we do from solar panels, even though we hear a lot more about solar and wind than any other source of energy. Well, that is very exciting for me to hear because I'm part of what you just said. I heat my house with wood. We don't use any propane at all. We live in the woods and enough trees die every year that we take them down, cut them into logs, split them, stack them. And it's my favorite uh, hobby is uh, doing all the manual labor involved in heating our house with wood. So I'm glad to hear that that's a bigger part than, uh, than wind and solar is together. Now, what are photovoltaic cells uh, made of? what? what uh, where do we obtain the materials to make these solar cells? I think 
few people really understand them. You know, they see a, a, what looks like a window kind of stuck in the ground or maybe on someone's rooftop, but they don't really understand what they're made of. So uh, let us know that, Isaac. Yeah, there's there's a few different kinds of solar panels. You have the ones that are the most popular, and those are the photovoltaics. But then you also have some called thin film, uh, which have a little bit different chemistry. So for the photovoltaics, they're mostly uh, made out of polysilicon, which is a very high purity glass. So that is manufactured mostly in China. I'm sure you guys have you know had people to, on to talk about the the conditions over there. So I probably don't need to bel- or to belabor that point too much. Uh, but uh, 80% of the world's polysilicon comes from China. 80% of the solar manufacturing facilities are located in China or in their uh, you know sphere of influence, right? So one mechanism that the, uh, the Chinese are trying to use in order to avoid tariffs uh, in the United States is to offshore some of these uh, solar panel construction sites to neighboring countries like Malaysia in order to try and fool U.S. customs into thinking that they weren't you know, created using slave labor. So uh, that's a big part of it. If, and if you have the thin film panels, uh, those are less ethically dubious, right? But they also contain more heavy metals like cadmium, selenium, uh, and all of these uh, panels are soldered together, and a lot of times lead is used for that. So, um, you know, there there are heavy metals associated with you know solar panels. Well, the normal lifespan, as my understanding is, we we have millions of them all over the country, and I've heard nothing about uh, what's going to happen, assuming they're no longer useful. Tell us a little about when and how they become no longer useful and what we anticipate their lifespan to be. Solar panels are generally warranted for 25 years. So I wouldn't expect them to last much longer than that. And there is a, there's a really good article, I believe it's in the Harvard Business Review uh, called The Looming Solar Trash Wave. That's talking about how generous subsidies for solar panels are incentivizing people to replace their existing panels long before the end of their 25-year lifetime. So we have these incentives that are supposed to help the environment, but they're also basically turning old existing panels that have degraded a little bit every year. That's just a natural thing. It happens with all kinds of power plants, but uh, solar panels are, I think they lose about 1% of their potential output every year. So you have a situation where you know, people are doing the numbers with the, the subsidies and they're saying, well, I need to get rid of these solar panels and put more on there. So uh, we are going to have a pretty big, uh, you know, they call it, it's essentially the equivalent of electronic waste when it's done. So uh, that's going to be a growing challenge as we cover more and more farm fields with solar panels. Mm. So it's a real ticking time bomb. Yeah, I guess you could call it that. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. I don't think that it's going to be like, I don't think the solar panel facilities are going to be super fun sites, uh, but I do think that it's going to be expensive to decommission these. And mm-hmm. unless local governments, because that's ultimately who's going to get foot or stuck footing this bill, unless they're prepared and they have agreements in place with these uh, solar developers that say, hey, you need to clean this up when you're done with it, uh, then that could be a pretty big tax burden on local communities who may not anticipate this costing as much as it might. Do they actually include those costs when they talk about the levelized cost of electricity for these panels? 
Oh no, uh, they don't. They don't. They don't include much in there, and we can talk about that in the next section because that's something we look at when we we do our reports. Well, I'm thinking that as these solar panels degrade and become uh, of little value, I doubt that they're going to be taken away. I'm just picturing acres and acres of solar panels that'll be sitting there uh, offering no electricity at all because there isn't money built into the contracts. The farmers are going to want their land back, I would expect, uh, to farm it, but uh, that will be uh, not likely to happen. So I think there's uh, absolutely a, a, a huge looming problem. What are most solar cells and total energy from them? What are the states that have the most of it? Yeah, you cal- and this California by a long shot. They've got about 37,000 megawatts of solar panels, uh, and that produces about 17%, 18% of their electricity. But when you run the numbers on that, it's only about 6% of their total energy. So California has invested billions of dollars into trying to get uh, more and more solar energy uh, on their grid. And, you know, it's great when the sun is shining, but in earlier this month, they almost had blackouts again from that magical period every day where the sun sets at three or starts setting at 3 p.m. until 10 p.m. They were basically begging people not to charge their electric vehicles, charging people not to use their washing machines. So it's a total mess. And uh, un- unfortunately, we have a lot of jurisdictions that are looking to repeat that mistake. Well, that is fascinating to me, but isn't all the solar in California have to be backed up with uh, fossil fuel power plants for these periods, or are they really just letting the grids uh, go brown or black? Well, they are going brown uh, and sometimes going black. So what California has done is they've shut down a lot of their nuclear plants. They've shut down a lot of their natural gas plants, which they're now having to bring back on. Uh, but they're very dependent on imports from neighboring jurisdictions. So whether they're importing hydroelectric power from the Pacific Northwest or they're importing power from you know, Arizona and Nevada, that's probably a mix of coal, gas, and nuclear, California is essentially participating in energy socialism, right? Uh, and the problem with California-style energy policy is eventually you run out of someone else's electricity. That, that's amazing. <laughs> I have uh, toured Australia and uh, they've got some major solar areas in what we call the great outback. And the wonderful thing about their solar is that it employs huge numbers of people, not in a way you would immediately think of, but the dust out there is such that they have to be cleaning the panels constantly. So the number of cleaners they employ is rather large. What are the maintenance problems with the solar uh, facilities, as you call them, uh, in this country? And I'm also wondering how many of the these solar uh, areas actually move with the sun, or are they mostly uh, totally stationary? Because I would think if they move with the sun, they really require a lot of maintenance because you've got a, a machine that's constantly uh, working. Yeah, my understanding is that most facilities are, uh, they do move with the sun. Uh, They call them single axis trackers. Uh, And they do that because it increases your ability to harvest the electricity as the sun is moving over. Uh, Solar panels are 
most effective when they are most directly positioned to capture the light, right? So I think that it balances out from an ROI perspective or pencils out rather. Um, and that does probably increase their, their maintenance, but in, you know, warm or desert areas in the United States, they do need to uh, clean the solar panels off. I've seen videos of, you know, they basically have a portable car wash. Uh, you know, those, uh, when you drive into the car wash and they have that big, uh, roller in the front, uh, I've seen the videos of tractors basically doing that for, for solar panels. And, uh, it's interesting because we have a good amount of solar up here in Minnesota where I live, even though you wouldn't necessarily think that, you know, solar panels in Minnesota would be the, you know, optimal placement, uh, for solar. Cause we have a little inconvenient thing called winter here. Uh, and when it snows, uh, you know, the, the amount of production that you get from a solar panel diminishes by a lot. And there's a developer, a solar developer called IPS Solar, and he gave an interview one time and he said, it's too expensive to clear the snow off of the solar panels. So they just kind of let the solar or the, the snow sit on the panel until it melts enough and it falls off. And he doesn't like the fact that I use that quote, uh, but it's, it's just a reality. If your business model in Minnesota, Wisconsin, North Dakota, or the Northeast is basically it's too expensive to clear the snow off of your product, then your product isn't viable in a free market. <laughs> well, you'd laugh, uh, Isaac. In Ottawa here, Ottawa, Canada, they want to put up 36 square kilometers of solar panels. And I presume then that for a large fraction of the year, they'd be covered with snow because we get lots and lots of snow. So they'd just be not usable for months at a time. Yeah, that's definitely a possibility. So uh, it's really interesting. Uh, the United States uh, Energy Information Administration has data that shows you the monthly output of solar panels. And uh, I believe it was in February of 2019 in Minnesota, the output was something like 4% or 5% just because it was so snowy that year. I had to I hated that winter because I had to snow blow the sidewalk like every other day. Uh, but those are real world problems that, you know, a lot of the people that do the modeling that say, oh, wind and solar are the cheapest sources of energy that they don't take into consideration. So a lot of the modeling that occurs, I think, is just kind of fundamentally dishonest, which is why Mitch and I felt like we needed to get into this space. So four to five percent, you mean they only got that much electricity as to what potentially they could get. Exactly. Yep. And in the in the business, they call that a capacity factor. It's basically a measurement of the potential or how much electricity did that solar panel produce compared to its theoretical output. So out of 100%, how much did it uh, generate during that month? Four or 5%. Wow. <laughs> Have any uh, solar panels been disposed of yet in the United States? And if so, how? Yeah, there's been some. Uh, so the the big takeoff in solar uh, happened in 2008 through 2011. And that's kind of when you started to see a big increase in the number of solar panels that was being installed. So there's been some, and I'm, I'm guessing that most of those panels were damaged in weather events. And, you know, the the problem with solar panels is they've gotten a lot cheaper, right? So they used to have more silver in them uh, in order to, you know, because silver is a good conductor of electricity. Uh, but in order to cut costs, developers got rid of more silver, which made them uh, less attractive for recycling. So basically, we have a situation where the only, you know, logical thing to do 
uh, with the solar panel is to put it in a landfill. So, uh, you know, some reports say it costs less than a dollar to landfill a solar panel, whereas it costs anywhere from, you know, 12 to $25 to recycle it. So there's really no business case for recycling these solar panels. Uh, so, you know, uh, that's, that's why they call it the, the looming solar trash wave. Well, I will recommend to our listeners uh, an article that Tom and I wrote based on uh, your excellent uh, research on them in AmericaOutloud.com. That uh, article should be up uh, today, and it talks about the things that we're talking about. But uh, it has a fabulous illustration at the top of the article just showing a pile of discarded solar panels. And I am really, this is sort of sad, somewhat excited about the uh, hurricane that is uh, about to hit Florida, striking somewhere around Tampa tomorrow. And there are a lot of solar panels uh, down there. And it is going to be very uh, interesting what very high winds might do to these uh, solar facilities if, in, in fact, they are uh, they're struck. Now, I understand that Europe is a little bit ahead of us in terms of determining what to do with their discarded solar panels, of which they have probably a larger, by far, percentage of their uh, energy coming from solar when the sun is shining. What do you know about uh, anything going on in Europe? Yeah, so Europe and Washington state require uh, the recycling of the the solar panels, right? So there, there can be uh, you know, they call them policy levers when it's just a, a government mandate, right? It's just a nice way of saying we're going to force you to do it. So they have, you know, these kind of like polluter pays laws. They're basically things that make the manufacturer uh, pay for the cleanup of the um, the product afterwards. It's, you, we have similar things like that in the United States with paint. Uh, so they, you know, Policymakers or governments enact these mandates in order to provide some, you know, realistic mechanism for disposing of things that are potentially hazardous in a in a safe manner. Because otherwise, you know, like nobody throws those CFL bulbs into like the proper disposal; they just put them in the trash, right? I think that everybody, uh, you know, this idea that we're gonna all take our discarded electronic waste to the one facility in the county that is registered to you know, handle that equipment is pretty, pretty fanciful. So really, uh, you need to make things as easy as possible. And I think that that's one mechanism that Europe is exploring to do that. Well, I'm, uh, we follow Europe very closely. And of course, because they are so dramatically involved in wind and solar, shutting down their coal power plants and uh, natural gas plants at a rate far exceeding the United States, they are in for uh, a winter of discontent like they have never had. It's going to be an absolute disaster throughout Europe because of so much reliance on solar. Any, any thoughts about what you expect to see there? That's my favorite John Steinbeck book, uh, Winter of Our Discontent. I uh, highly <laughs> recommend the, uh, the readers check it out. Uh, so, I don't know. Like I have a little bit of schadenfreude when it comes to Germany, because when policymakers in the United States, especially President Trump, 
try to warn them about the decisions that they were making. They just laughed at us. They looked at us like we were stupid. So unfortunately, it's going to be a really painful experience in those countries that have decided that they're going to try and rely on unreliable energy sources. So uh, when I'm feeling a little, little sarcastic, I like to say, well, why doesn't Germany turn its wind turbines up? Right. So uh, the, the problem is, you know, right now, as we're recording this, there's been reports that the Nord Stream 1 is now leaking gas into the Baltic Sea. Uh, we really don't know what the situation is going to look like there. Uh, Germany does not have the LNG import, liquefied natural gas import terminals that they'll need in order to bring the gas from the United States that they were chastising us for producing into their factories, into their homes to keep people from, from freezing to death. So, you know, I hope I'm wrong, but I think it's going to be pretty ugly. And even the uh, the German government isn't ruling out unrest as a potential result of the, the energy policies that they've pursued over the last you know 20 years. They're going to blame Putin, but they really have nobody to blame but themselves. Do you see some governments falling as a result of this? Ooh, I don't know enough about European governments and how uh, strong they are at the moment. So I'm going to I'm going to punt respectfully on that question. <laughs> but uh, I do think that that is a more distinct possibility in developing countries. Right. So places where you may already have had questionable leadership or questionable support for the leadership. You know, everyone says you're just three meals away from anarchy. So the food shortages that are coming to, you know, one of the you know, side effects of high natural gas prices in Europe is that they've shut down their fertilizer production. So, you know, a fertilizer or sorry, natural gas is a primary feedstock for the fertilizer industry. So when Russia decided that they were going to increase the cost or reduce the supply of fertilizer to Europe, that's resulted in a huge shortage and huge price increases too. So uh, two years ago, my dad paid about $15,000 for fertilizer. He still farms like 300 acres in Wisconsin. Uh, this year, he paid $34,000 for, wow. yeah. So wow. those kinds of cost increases are inconvenient for you know farmers in the United States, but they're totally unable to get absorbed by farmers in developing countries. So we will see some governments fall as a result of food shortages, Probably. That's what Doomberg tells me on Twitter. If you don't follow Doomberg, you probably should. <laughs> okay. <laughs> on that note, we're going to go for a commercial break. This has been Isaac Orr, a policy fellow at the Center of the American Experiment. And he's an expert on energy and environment and various other issues, especially this business about how you get rid of solar panels when they're done. So stay tuned. We'll be right back after you. While many things we hear are lies, we know one thing is true. Viruses exist and people get sick. Look, there's no guaranteed way to keep from getting sick, but there is a way to reduce your chances. Cofix RX, the original povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray that you hear Dr. McCullough talking about, provides an additional invisible layer of protection from colds, flu, coronaviruses, and more. Click the banner ad on americaoutloud.com and use promo code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Stay protected with Cofix RX. For 40 years, alarmists have been warning of a climate catastrophe, yet none of their dire predictions have come true. Temperatures have not soared, sea level rise has not been unusual, and extreme weather events have not increased in either frequency or intensity. In short, there is no climate emergency. 
For 15 years, the International Climate Science Coalition has led the call for climate realism and a Made in America climate plan, a plan based on real science that responds to the real-world needs of Americans, supports economic growth, and strengthens our essential infrastructure, a plan that protects the environment and ensures that Americans can enjoy the blessings of clean air, clean land, and clean water for generations to come. It's time to put ideology and pseudoscience aside. It's time for a sensible climate plan. For more information or to donate, visit our website, icsc-climate.com. America Out Loud beats to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, you're troubled, confused, glad, and thankful. We know you because we are you. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. We are America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. You already know Genesis plus HOCL is your best defense against viruses. But did you also know it's the most powerful weapon for eliminating airborne mold too? Customers are raving about the Genesis Fogger's ability to tackle mold problems and the bad smells that go with them. And we all know mold is a hazard to your health. There's no airborne invader that Genesis can't handle. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. These days, every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a new threat to your health. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top and shoot it down, or mix it in water. Boost your immunity. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. So we're back with Isaac Orr, Policy Fellow at the Center of the American Experiment, and we're talking specifically about what may happen in Europe. So Jay, over to you. Well, I am very fortunate, uh, Tom and Isaac, to be uh, participate every Tuesday morning in an international conference call on uh, energy. And uh, we have regular weekly participants in uh, Germany, Chile, Brazil, Canada, and the United States. and uh, the comments from our German friends uh, really echo what uh, Isaac said uh, shortly about what is expected there. And he uh, mentioned the schadenfreude of gaining joy from others' misery. And I, I share that, but I share it in even a more optimistic way. I think things are going to be so bad in Europe this year that it's going to wake up much of the rest of the world. Uh, hopefully in the United States, we'll actually get a feel for how people feel about this in the United States on November 8th, when we take our national poll, we call a midterm election 
to see how the rank and file public are reacting to what's been happening uh, to us these past uh, two years. But uh, Germany is uh, really tightening their belt. They, uh, you know, have terrible leadership. The new leadership that replaced Angela Merkel is a, a little bit better than uh, she was, which is defined as a total disaster. But their uh, view there is that uh, it's going to be a learning experience. And pretty much what Isaac said previously, there it's going to be a wake-up call. But there are other really exciting things happening in Europe from a conservative standpoint, an election standpoint, uh, most people may be aware that uh, the United Kingdom, Britain, has uh, replaced their leadership with a conservative woman that looks like, to a certain extent, the second coming of Margaret Thatcher. Italy has done the same. A woman who just won the prime minister uh, election in Italy is uh, extremely conservative. Brazil votes next week, and uh, they know it's going to be a landslide for a more conservative leader. Canada is probably our biggest problem, which uh, Tom can describe a little uh, later in the show. But I am uh, feeling that we're going to learn a lot from the disaster that will befall Europe. And uh, my friends in Germany uh, are absolutely sure there's no way to avoid it. So uh, these are kind of exciting times. Uh, No matter what side you're on, you're going to be witnessing Uh, some major changes. You mentioned that Europe has rules on disposal. The state of Washington appears to be the only state in the United States has rules. Uh, Has any effort been made by your organization or any organization to warn the governments that are promoting solar energy throughout the United States that they have a looming problem? Uh, yeah, we we have to some extent, right? So a lot of times what happens with us is we'll have local government officials reach out to us and say, hey, we've heard stories in the newspaper about uh, these solar developers who've defrauded their you know potential customers. So they want to make sure that they can protect themselves from that. But they also want to know about things that they can do to make sure that uh, the solar companies clean up their mess when they're done. So uh, a lot of times we advise them that you should get a irrevocable letter of credit as a bond in order to you know, pay for the decommissioning in case the solar company goes belly up. Uh, so I think that you know we haven't done anything on a statewide basis, but we do we do advise these local governments who will be kind of stuck with the consequences if uh, they don't kind of take common sense steps to protect themselves. I'm somewhat related uh, <laughs> in the solar industry. I have a son-in-law who uh, was a firefighter for uh, 25 years, and he now works uh, for a solar company teaching firemen uh, how to deal with a roof on fire covered with uh, solar panels. He's been all over the country, and especially in Puerto Rico, where they lost energy at firehouses uh, some time back. But it's a real problem that nobody is considering. And most of the local solar companies are recommending solar panels on your roofs and without even considering what the additional fire hazard could be in terms of putting out a fire. So it's, uh, it really is quite fascinating. Now, Do you just throw baking soda on it? Is that... <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, that's very interesting. And I have not heard that. My son-in-law has not shared 
his methodology okay. uh, with me, although I have watched him on a roof fighting a fire. Uh, I, I got really lucky. One day I was visiting him and there was a fire and I got to jump into the fire truck and actually watch him on the roof of one of these uh, facilities. And they, uh, they managed, but it is uh, extremely complicated and extremely hazardous to the firemen. That's the biggest part of it that they have to teach these people what to do. Well, mm-hmm. to, to finalize our discussion on solar, what do you think is the future of solar energy in the United States? Well, uh, my sarcastic answer is I think they're going to go the way of the Beanie Baby. Um, if you remember that, they were all the rage when I was in third grade. Uh, very popular children's toy. Uh, if you didn't have them, you weren't cool. But I do think that, you know, there may be some limited off-grid applications for them. But this idea that we're going to power the the country or even a state with, you know, a combination of wind, solar, and battery storage is a fairy tale. Um, and there's a whole bunch of different reasons for that. A, it takes up a lot of land. B, it increases your amount of reliance on China because that's where most of these panels are produced. Uh, and you know, the biggest one for me is cost and you know electric reliability. Um, people are really—I like to call it the energy pyramid—and you need to have you know your first priority should be a reliable source of electricity. Your second priority should be. Uh, is it affordable? And then at the top of the pyramid, your third item on your checklist can be, you know, clean, right? You can have, you know, fewer emissions, you can have zero CO2, whatever you want to describe that as. But if you don't have those other prerequisites, which are reliability and affordability, your idea for what the energy system should look like isn't sustainable. Well, we're going to reserve a a few minutes at the end for uh, Tom to talk about the situation in Ottawa, Canada, with uh, their insane political leadership that wants to uh, cover the land of a relatively small city uh, with uh, wind and and solar, uh, and of course, bankrupt the city. It isn't going to happen, but Tom is leading the way to stop it. But I want to move right now to the work you've done on the cost of ending all CO2 emissions. It's called decarbonization. The whole idea is is silly and impossible, and yet I'm guessing that all of our listeners have read something about efforts around the world, around their state, around our nation, uh, our our current federal administration's leadership in decarbonizing the world. We only live here because we have carbon dioxide. Uh, Our little blue planet would be unsustainable for life if we didn't have carbon dioxide. Uh, So the idea of removing it, they call it carbon instead of decarbon dioxizing, however what that word would be. They want it to think in terms of carbon. They want the public to think we're getting rid of coal dust, soot, something bad. The whole thing is crazy, and it's exciting that your organization has uh, tackled it. Uh, tell us something about what you've done. Yeah, absolutely. So our governor said, well, he ran for office four years ago saying, well, I want a 50% renewable energy mandate by 2030. And as soon as he got into office, he said, I actually want to go 100% carbon free by 2050. And then last year, he said, well, I want to make it 2040 now. So we said, well, 
okay, well, let's let's figure out what the cost of that would be. Let's educate the Minnesota public about that. And they can make up their own minds as to whether they think the costs are worth the benefits, right? So we determined, Mitch Rowling and I, he's my colleague here at American Experiment, that this would this proposal would cost our state $313 billion through 2050, which is an enormous amount. We're a state with a population of about five and a half million. So uh, this would cost... <laughs> This would cost the average electricity customer about $3,900 per year. That's averaged out over uh, residential, commercial, and industrial customers. But if you try to do it, uh, if you do a more detailed breakdown, uh, I, I broke these numbers out for you. It would be about $1,600 per year for residential customers. It would be about $10,000 for small businesses, commercial customers, and industrial customers would see an increase of uh, $222,000 per year. Uh, wow. So that is a huge amount. Minnesota is a huge manufacturing state. We're also a large mining state. So we're responsible for about 80% of the iron ore that is produced domestically. And we also have the world's largest undeveloped deposits of copper, nickel, and cobalt in the United States. So, you know, we have the potential to be globally significant producers of the metals and minerals that we rely on every single day. But if our electricity prices go that high, there's no way in the HE double hockey sticks that we'll be able to afford that, right? So one iron mine in Minnesota, it's called the Mintac mine and Mountain Iron, is reported to use as much electricity and natural gas as the entire city of Minneapolis. So just incredibly energy intensive. And uh, increasing the cost of electricity, people say, oh, well, that's going to increase jobs or spur economic growth. And the exact opposite is true, right? So most people don't understand that the dictionary definition of energy is the ability to do work. When you make work more expensive to do, you do less of it. That reduces our productivity and that decreases our standard of living, right? So by increasing electricity prices, you are increasing the cost of everything because electricity is involved with the production of everything. So this, you know, the Walls proposal is what we call it because Governor Walls is the, the governor, uh, would kill about 79,000 jobs in the state mm -hmm. of Minnesota just by making electricity so expensive. And the worst part about all of this is the grid still wouldn't be reliable after you did all of these you know, you installed all this wind, solar, and battery storage. So what we did to figure out how many wind turbines and solar panels you would need is we took federal data and we said, okay, well, what's the hourly electricity demand in Minnesota? And what was the hourly generation from wind and solar in our 15-state regional electric grid, uh, the Mid-Continent Independent Systems Operator, and how much capacity, how many wind turbines, solar panels, and battery storage megawatts or megawatt hours would you need in order to meet that demand. So we ran that number for 2021 and you said, okay, well, this technically meets electricity demand for every hour of the, of the year. But when we did that for 2020, uh, we took the same electricity demand for 2021, but wind and solar generation for 2020. And if you did that, if you had that same system and you had weather like 2020 instead of 2021, you would have a 55 hour blackout in January. And that's caused by the fact it's insane, right? This is so dangerous and it, it would be deadly, right? In Minnesota, if you had a 55 hour blackout in January, people would die. It'd be just like Texas, uh, but probably worse because it'll be colder. Uh, so, you know, I feel 
you know, unfortunately, the way that the rhetoric is in our political dialogue, dangerous gets thrown around really, I would say, uh, willy nilly. <laughs> you know, I think that it's kind of lost its meaning, but that's the only word. This is potentially deadly policy, right? But there is one area of electricity that everybody is missing. I'm working on an article right now on a, a need for electricity that people take for granted, and that is uh, our computers. Uh, right now, the world has become uh, computerized. The transmission of uh, the amount of power that your cell phone requires to show you a video is quite large. And that uh, video communication is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And all of the data centers around the world collectively are eventually going to use more energy than all of transportation uh, around the world. We're not even calculating that into the disaster of decarbonizing the world. I mean, literally, the world would shut down if we could not have communication on the internet and so on, the electricity required is enormous. So everything you're saying, Isaac, is just right on target. And we've just got to convince everybody that it's all extremely silly. Why do you think the, the people, your governor and his comrades are successful in fooling the citizens of Minnesota and throughout the world in the United States that carbon dioxide is a bad thing and we should have no emissions when, if they can remember what they learned in the fifth grade, we absolutely need carbon dioxide to survive. Well, I think that he, he does it by telling people that using wind and solar is going to be cheaper than the existing grid, right? They say, oh, well, we need to grow our homegrown industries uh, because Minnesota doesn't have any coal or natural gas. So we should be using solar panels or wind turbines. And they they make all these big economic promises to people and people want to feel good about the environment, right? I think that the environment is mostly an, an emotional good, right? That's why people recycle, even though when you look at the data, it doesn't make any sense to recycle. I recycle metal. I recycle the things that I've researched that it makes sense to recycle. Otherwise, I throw it in the trash bin, right? So there is an emotional pull towards this kind of romantic idea of relying on nature. But really, go back to Little House on the Prairie. Uh, life was nasty, brutish, and short before we were using more energy. But I do want to get back to this theme that Tom was talking about earlier about this levelized cost of energy, right? So uh, you hear all kinds of wind and solar advocates talk about the levelized cost of energy and wind and solar are now the cheapest sources of power. But you can only make that claim if you ignore the subsidies that go to solar, if you ignore the additional transmission lines that you need in order to connect these things to the grid, uh, if you ignore the profits that utility companies make on them, and then also the battery storage that you need in order to store that power for later. So when do you incorporate all of these hidden costs? Uh, Mitch Rowling and I determined that the true cost of serving electricity demand with wind and solar was uh, $470 per megawatt hour for solar and $270 per megawatt hour for wind, right? So basically 10 times what people tell you in the media. So that is a huge discrepancy between the cost of you know, running an existing coal plant or an existing natural gas plant or nuclear plant, all of which can generate electricity for 
you know, 40 to $60 per megawatt hour, depending on what the current fuel price is. So that's the main reason, right? Because they just tell people everything is going to be free and people will pay a lot for what's for something they think is free, right? So uh, they keep doubling down on this kind of fallacy. Everybody dreams about winning the lottery, even though few people buy a ticket. Mm -hmm. So it may be as much as 10 times more expensive to power your society with wind and solar and batteries than with fossil fuels. Yeah, that's what our research finds. So if people want to check that out, go to AmericanExperiment.org. Uh, and it's called The High Cost of 100% Carbon-Free Electricity by 2040. Uh, it's under the report section of our website. So we look at the, we call it the, the all-in LCOE of wind and solar, because you know, uh, you can't compare the cost of unreliable wind and solar to reliable power plants. That's not an apples to apples comparison because yeah, you need to know that when you need your heater on, that the power is going to show up. And one of the things that we found in our analysis was in 2020, there was an 80 hour period where wind turbines were producing less than 10% of their potential output in a 42 hour period where all of the wind turbines on the 15 state regional grid were producing less than one and a half percent of their potential output, 42 straight hours. That's simply unreliable. You cannot pretend that you can power a society on that. So uh, that's why it's so expensive, because if you're going to try to make something that's inherently unreliable, reliable, you're going to have a problem. Mm -hmm. Well, Isaac, you know, just getting back to what Jay said about what we're doing here in Ottawa, I'll just tell you, Ottawa is going to lead the world to stop climate change. We want to have 36 square kilometers of rooftop solar. That's 161,000% increase over today's levels. They want to have 710 industrial wind turbines, each taller than Big Ben. Um, they want to have 122 large shipping containers of lithium batteries for power storage. Now, you know, you're talking about a city where, you know, we'll get minus 30, we'll get you know, several feet of snow. It sounds like what experience they had in Texas, which was 700 deaths, according to the Wall Street Journal, that it'd be much worse in Ottawa if we actually went ahead with this plan. Yeah, especially if you close down uh, your nuclear plants or your hydro plants that provide the vast majority of the electricity up there, from my understanding, right? So yeah. Yeah, um, we want to get it all from wind and solar, practically. <laughs> which is a brave plan. Uh, hopefully it works out for you, but I wouldn't bet on it. <laughs> yeah. So if 700 people died in Texas, then Ottawa, with its minus 30 type temperatures, we're risking possibly thousands dying. Yeah. But I think that, you know, the I'm not sure where Ottawa gets their electricity right now, but I'm sure they're all part of a larger Canadian grid. Right. So they would be able to import from other areas. One of the reasons that the Texas blackouts were so devastating is that they didn't have transmission to the rest of, you know, the eastern interconnect. Right. So. If they had, if ERCOT, if Texas had had connections to the rest of the United States, more states would have had blackouts. Minnesota would have had rolling blackouts, but they would have been able to, to roll the blackouts in Texas. Maybe people would only have had no power for two to three hours instead of 72 hours, right? So the problem with blackouts is like two to three hours is bad. 72 hours is exponentially worse. So the longer that blackout goes on, the more damage you have to property, the more people try to 
either have their grills going inside to stay warm. They go to their cars inside of the garages, they get carbon monoxide poisoning. So that's the real challenge here. And the big issue that we're seeing in, at American Experiment, because we do modeling for states all over the country. We looked at West Virginia, Virginia, North Carolina, Arizona, and uh, a few other states already. And one of the problems is every state thinks that some other state is going to be the state that gives them electricity when they need it, when the sun isn't shining or the wind isn't blowing. So <laughs> the problem is you're going to run out of someone else's electricity. It's the same thing as California, but people are kind of pretending that that's not the case, right? So Virginia thinks they'll be able to import from North Carolina. North Carolina thinks they'll be able to import from uh, the regional grid in the Eastern United States, PJM. And it's going to be a situation where nobody has any spare capacity. So that's a real risk that we see moving forward. And that is unfortunate, obviously. Mm -hmm. So when they say, our, our politicians say, Ottawa wants to lead the world, we better hope that we don't lead the jurisdictions around <laughs> us to do the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. And Germany is going to show us that that's not a very good strategy, right, this winter. And, you know, hopefully people in North America are willing to look at that example and reevaluate their own preconceived notions, or there could be an alternative situation where they need to experience it for themselves before they're going to think that uh, they do need to reevaluate that. Wow. Well, uh, Tom, what they're planning in Ottawa can never happen. None of what you described in terms of rooftop solar and, and 700 and some wind turbines, they'll be bankrupt long before they get that done. And they're, they're not going to get enough subsidies from the Canadian government with their communist prime minister. So it can never happen. But I know you're leading the, the battle uh, against people running for office there to stop it before they find out it can't be done. Is that correct? Yeah, our concern is that we may get 10 years into this program, waste you know, several tens of billions of dollars, put up several dozen massive turbines, have several blackouts before we realize, oh, this isn't a good idea. So we're hopefully gonna shorten that period during which we do crazy things. But I, I agree, I don't think they'll ever get to the final outcome, but we wanna hopefully shorten the time period it takes for them to realize that. <laughs> That is very well said, and I appreciate it because I've kind of always been curious how to put that into words, how much rope you have to give people to uh, hang themselves before they realize they don't want any more rope and they don't want to hang themselves. And uh, that is, uh, is where they're at now. Where did you get the funding to do this fabulous study? Uh, do you have just outside donors that contribute to a particular project or to your entire organization? Yeah, so there's two main funding mechanisms. Uh, we're supported by over 8,870 uh, Minnesotans. So we've got a wow. very strong grassroots network and people just support our message. And that's been fantastic. And then I mentioned that we do studies for other organizations that are interested in having these same types of analysis done in their state. Or, you know, sometimes we evaluate utility integrated resource plans for organizations. So, you know, fortunately, we've been able to make a little mini modeling business in our think tank. And that helps, you know, the proceeds from that help pay for projects in our home state. So uh, we've, we've turned our, our, our little nook in the office into a, a profit center. And uh, that's been great. Well, we'll, uh, we'll link to your organization. Well, actually, we can do that in the article that's running right now. And when this becomes a podcast, we'll 
uh, give you lots of publicity because it it sounds like uh, you're doing fabulous work. And the more states knuckle down and say, well, what really would be our costs if we do this? Where else do they have to go? So this is very exciting. I had a slightly off topic question. You know, Dr. Tim Ball passed away, unfortunately, just a couple of days ago. And during the latter part of his life, when he was actually much more well known and much more famous, he got five serious death threats from, you know, various groups who didn't like what they're saying. What's been the opposition's response to your studies, Isaac? Have they been furious at you folks? No, not yet. So uh, what's the old adage? Uh, first, they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then you win. We're in like the transition between ignore and laugh. So uh, there, you know, I posted a Twitter thread. You can follow me at the fracking guy on Twitter mm-hmm. about this. And this chart that we have shows the levelized cost of energy for wind and solar being you know, 472 for solar, 272 for wind. And we compare that to the existing coal, nuclear and natural gas plants in Minnesota, which are like $34, $36 a megawatt hour. And that that tweet went viral, right? So I think it got retweeted something like 400 times. There's 600 likes on it. And for my little sleepy account, that's pretty viral, right? So there is a yeah. big hunger for this information because all people hear about is, oh, it's the lowest cost of energy. And, you know, there's there's a growing community online of you know, nuclear advocates, conservatives, free marketers who are saying like, no, all of this wind and solar stuff is crazy. And we need to, you know, start exposing the the downsides of, of wind and solar. So Michael Schellenberger does a great job of that. So it's interesting to see how the tide is starting to turn, but it's only turning because a lot of really good, hardworking people have put in a lot of, you know, blood, sweat, and tears. So hopefully enough people have gone before me to maybe where I don't get the death threats. I just get the the block button on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. Well, on that note, we have to wrap up. This has been an amazing show, and I'm going to actually share it with the city of Ottawa councillors and all the candidates that I can because they've got to understand what's real in this world. It's not magical thinking (laughs) that's going to run our city, that's for sure. So that was great, Isaac. So this has been Isaac Orr, Policy Fellow at the Center of the American Experiment. He's an energy and environment expert, speaking today about the real costs of wind and solar, both environmentally from the point of view of operations and, of course, cost. So thanks for being on the show, Isaac. Thanks for having me. It was great. Yeah. Well, this is Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris signing out from the other side of the story.